So good evening again, uh, brothers and sisters. It's a pleasure to have each and every one of you. And the parable that I am uh, assigned to is the parable of the persistent widow. So before beginning, it would be appropriate to provide context as to why our Lord introduces the parable that we will dive into. If you could turn with me to the Bible, Luke 17, verses 22 to 37, we will see our Lord speaking to the disciples. Verse 22. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And he will look and they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, drinking, and marrying, and being given to marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Saddam, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them. Therefore, in the light of this reading, the parable of the persistent widow relates to the Lord's second coming. And I want us, as we read the parable of the persistent widow and the unjust judge, I want us to keep in mind, as we read, of the Lord's second coming, in which we wait for as well. And I believe this is the intention to this parable, uh, but also to our Christian life, because we, to this day, are praying, Maranatha, Lord, come. So now our parable Luke 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? And the points, the three points to this study is, point one is pray to persevere. Point two is polarizations. And point three is promises of our provider. So pray to persevere, polarizations, and promises of our provider. We, we, we now come into praying to persevere. 
The Lord Jesus was telling them, if we pay attention, them he is speaking to his disciples, a parable to show that at all times, not sometimes, not when you feel like it, at all times, they ought to pray and not lose heart. Jesus gives us immediate access to see the purpose of this parable that at all times, men, including women, ought to pray and not lose heart. This is the meaning, brothers and sisters. Christ gives us the meaning right away that at all times, men ought to pray and not lose heart. And I want to focus on the word ought for a minute to understand the command on which Christ calls us to pray. The word ought comes from the Greek word day, from deo, which means to bind or tie objects together. So day refers to an inward constraint, which is why it is often translated must. Day describes that which is under the necessity of happening or that which must necessarily take place. So in other words, to express the word day, it is translated one ought, one should, one has to, or one must. And we can conclude, therefore, that Christ is commanding us that one must pray to not lose heart, that one has to pray to not lose heart, or that one should pray to not lose heart. So the question that I have as we learn that we must pray, it is not optional, is what is prayer? What is prayer? Sister Anne? Communion with God. Amen. Anyone else? I think Spurgeon is one of the quotes he said is, prayer is the slender nerve that moves the muscle of the omnipotence. Consider the nervous system, your body's command center. Without a, without a nervous system, muscles don't move. You are unable to walk. You're, there's no running. There's no lifting. There's no standing. There's no power. A nervous system isn't optional. Would you guys agree? And neither is prayer. Pastor Paul. What prayer does, it keeps us in touch with our heavenly home where our Lord dwells. And if we don't keep in touch with our Lord through prayer, we're apt to be influenced by this wicked culture because it abounds all around us. So it's, it's a safeguard that they keep from letting any part of this wicked culture influence us in any way by keeping in touch with our Lord and our heavenly home. Amen. Amen. And that is why we must pray. Um, Where there is a lack of prayer, brothers and sisters, there will be a lack of power. And where prayer is found, as our dear brother Pastor Paul said, there will be displays of God's power. And I can't explain it. I can't explain it, but... A man who spends countless time with the Lord, it is evident in their prayer life. For example, when I first came to Grace and Truth Church and I heard our dear brother Pastor Paul pray, I was moved to my soul. And brothers, we are 
are, are, are you constantly asking, Lord, make me a man. Make me a woman of prayer, marked with the presence of God that we can pray, that when we speak, that when we teach, is power from God and not from our human will. And I myself, as this study was being expounded before my eyes, one of the things that I said is, I'm sick of playing. I want to be praying. Because as our dear brother Pastor Paul said, there's so many distractions in this world that if we stop praying, what does our Lord say? We lose heart. And why do we pray? Why do we pray? We pray because it is a command. Verse 1. Jesus said that men ought to pray. He didn't say if you want to pray. He said men ought to pray. Uh, Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Another command we have is 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. And that is that spirit of prayer. We also pray because it is a sin. It is a sin if we neglect prayer. One more thing. And this is taken from an old man. The more I pray, I mean really pray, the more you know the presence of God. And that's worth everything, to know the presence of God. Amen. And that's why we pray, because when you're really sincere, I... I, I find that when I pray for an hour at a time, I find that's really what just uh, evolves in you, his presence. Amen. Brother Eric? I mean, just to piggyback off of that, amen to that. I mean, if we perceive prayer as a privilege, I think it can truly shift our perspective about certain things. For example, uh, a difficult lesson nonetheless, but, um, but a blessed one is that I've been learning is the blessedness of burden and perceiving that as God omnipotently, sovereignly drawing you to himself and thus perceiving prayer as a privilege. It has, it has such a conforming effect. I mean, I don't want to rob you from your, from your lesson time, but like, if we just meditate on Romans 8, 26 and 27, we know not what we ought to pray for, the Spirit of God who intercedes according to the will of God. Prayer can reveal the will of God by what you are uttering. Amen. So perceiving it as a privilege, too. Also, uh, as far as the need and all those things, but perceiving it as a privilege, I think, has a radical, radicalizing effect on our perception of prayer. Amen. Amen. And it is also the mark of the believer. The person that doesn't pray, it demonstrates that they're not connected with the Lord. They don't have the Lord. Um, and it is that spiritual life um, that we see in Romans 8.15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption that we can say, Abba, Father, prayer to the Christian life. Oh, to the Christian is like breathing. One thing is greater joy, brother, than when you see you pray and see that answer prayer, when you see the hand of God, it says answer. Amen. Amen. 
and and the humbling that God, who God is, and yet who we are, and He answered me, Sister Erin. We're, con- we're putting God first. Amen. And that just goes with Matthew 6.33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else shall be added unto you. What happens if we stop praying? What happens if we stop praying? When, we, when we stop asking, we stop receiving. <laughs> And nervousness. Once you pray and leave it with the Lord, you have such comfort and such peace. You don't know how it's going to turn out, but you've left it to the Lord. If you don't, if you cease praying, you're just filled with anxiety like all the unbelievers. Mm-hmm. And here in this verse, everything you guys said was good. Christ tells us that if we stop praying, we lose heart. King James Version uses losing heart by saying that men are to always pray and not to faint, which is interesting. Fainting happens when you lose consciousness for a short amount of time because your brain isn't getting enough oxygen or enough blood supply. When someone faints, and I know our dear brother pastor back there could attest to this, Um, When someone faints, they lose their might, which is interesting because if prayer for the believer is like breathing, then we can conclude that neglecting prayer will take the life out of you. Or when we see that phrase, not to faint or, uh, you know, losing heart, it is the modern expression of saying, I've thrown in the towel. I've thrown in the towel. One commentary expresses the word to mean utterly spiritless, to be wearied out, to be exhausted, which can also lead us to discouragement. Has anyone here ever felt discouraged? Now, is discouragement a sin? Yes. Anyone opposed say nay? sin to be discouraged but if you let the discouragement become despair then it's a sin amen and that's the point that i'm making the word discouragement means to be total the opposite to lose courage and so we need to watch out for discouragement when it starts as pastor bob said that despair right we stop attending bible services we stop attending midweek Study, we no longer have the desire to keep fighting. There's a drift from God, and discouragement starts to paralyze us. And that is what we have to keep on, on watch that we are not paralyzed from discouragement to keep us from doing what God has called us to do. So if we are discouraged, we're here to pray for you. But if you are paralyzed 
then in love I act, I say repent. Repent because Romans 12, 12 says, Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. As discouragement, if you cannot say, I'm rejoicing in the Lord, persevering in tribulation, and given to prayer, and have done the total opposite, which will drive you away from the Lord, then that has become a sin. Brother uh, Pastor Bob? I just was going to mention that as Christians, we go through seasons. And there are seasons where we're thriving spiritually when things are smooth. Mm-hmm. You know, you get those mountaintop experiences, and there are seasons when you're in the valley. Yes. And there are seasons when, when you know, you can't even pray. And uh, in those seasons where it's hard to pray, sometimes discouragement or sickness, whatever it may be, it could be simple prayer like when Peter was falling into the water, when he looked down and saw that he was standing on water, he started to sink. What was his prayer? Lord, save me. Three words, but they were, they were it was a prayer that, you know, sometimes, and I, I see that as a picture of us. There are times we're sinking. We're, we could be sinking in a slough of despond or discouragement i may not be able to articulate a, a spiritually masterful prayer it may just be simply, save me amen you know so it's not so much the content that's the heart amen you know and that comes reliance. amen and and definitely can agree to say that prayer is not using words right but we have an example of anna she was so burdened to have Samuel, that she was in the temple just pouring herself out to the Lord, where her, 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 the, the, um, Eli, the priest, thought that she was drunk. But in reality, she was pouring because God knows our, the thoughts before we say them. The words that are, the, he knows what we are, are, are burdened with, what, are we, what grieves us, what saddens us. And coming to him, crying is a prayer. Just saying, Lord, as Pastor Bob says, save me. Or my prayer is, Lord, help me. Help me. You know, help me. I need your help. Um, And again, uh, we want to take this parable and remember that Christ in this parable does not want us to faint because of the delay of his coming. I've seen a lot of professing Christians who had got tired of waiting on the Lord's coming. Oh, the Lord's coming. They've been saying that 2,000 years ago. And they've lost that hope. They've become discouraged. And that's when that sin, when we no longer believe what the Lord is saying, when we no longer believe his word. But what can you do? What can you do when you lose heart? And you can't pray. Or you feel like you can't pray. You pray. You pray. You pray until you can pray. And you pray to be helped to pray. And do not give up praying just because you cannot pray. I would also advise to seek godly men. Seek our pastors who are godly examples, just like Epaphras, who in Colossians 4.12 Paul describes him as always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers. 
that we may stand perfect and fully assured in the will of God. Pastor Paul. I think we forget that when we pray, we're really honoring the Lord because he said, without me, you can do nothing. So that when we pray, we're acknowledging we're helpless without you. So we're honoring him by praying to him, showing our helplessness without him. Amen. Amen. I mean, yeah, I think prayer is the confession of our dependency and our need of the Lord. But something also, too, is is um, kind of going back to the defining prayer. Um, I believe prayer is a posture of heart. Um, remember that also in Romans 8, it says wordless groan, wordless groans exist. Right. So so as Pastor Bob was saying, like. Is not the quantity of words, but I would argue the weight of them, that they can even transform, like, not transform, but they can uh, 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 be expressed in wordless groans. But you are before the Lord with a certain reverent, Amen. prostrated posture of heart. You know what I'm saying? So I think, like, I, just again, just to, because we could just, there's so many ways to define prayer, dialogue, or, you know what I'm saying, or... People, we, we are actually uh, exhorted not to pray with many words like the Pharisees to show up. You know what I'm saying? So I just thought I'd mention that. Amen. Pastor Bob. Yeah, once again, kind of picking up on that. I feel like when you're, when you're in church and around other Christians in prayer meetings, it's very easy to be tempted to pray more eloquently and multiply words. Mm-hmm. But when you're in your prayer closet and you're just just you, you know, kind of like, you know, you let your hair down and you, you know, it's like I'm with my father now and I could be me. And, and, and those prayers may not be the kind of prayers you pray corporately. And you shouldn't pray those prayers corporately because you're representing people in a corporate environment. But, you know, when you could just let your hair down and just be you and pour out your heart before the Lord, you know, it, it, that that's what's really important. Uh, you, there was some question you asked, but what do you do if you can't pray? Uh, uh, you know, well, praying if you can't pray, well, that that's almost like redundant and circular reasoning there. So so I I suggest this: if you can't pray, ask someone to pray with you. Not just pray for you, right? There's times you might be in a situation where you just can't pray. You're just so in such a state of mind, you're mm-hmm. you cannot do it. And if, if you've never been there, then you've never really been through a real testing, okay? And, and, and then when you, when you cannot pray, I, I find that when someone prays with me, that spurs on the prayer within. Amen. Then I'm able to pray after that because maybe someone, someone might be in a much better state than I'm in at that moment. And their prayer just, it's like the Holy Spirit uses that to enliven you at that moment. Amen. Just remember, this is not a, you know, our walks are not designed to be alone. You know, sanctification is a group project. Amen. Brother Rick. So there are times talking about eloquent prayer and eloquent words, and there's been times you probably all have had where we're so distraught and so broken and so defeated that we really, the Bible says in Romans eight twenty six that we don't know how to pray. 
We don't know how to pray as we ought, but the Holy Spirit um, intercedes for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And I've been on my hands broken and my knees and been like, oh, I don't even know what to say. What can I say before a holy God? And, and um, so the Holy Spirit, it's nice to know that he's like an attorney living in us and he's interceding for us uh, to the judge of judges, you know, and scary to go to the throne of grace sometimes. And, but in our brokenness, know that we have the Holy Spirit and he helps us. Amen. He, he, is, he said he would never leave us nor forsake us. And we, again, do want to emphasize the, the body of believers to carry each other's burdens. Hi, God bless you guys. My name is Ramiro. I'm a friend of Marvin, who's teaching right now. Um, also, I want to say that, uh, like, when it comes to prayer, like, sometimes we get in that habit of, like, repetition, just repeating what other people say, and, like, it has to really come from the heart. Like, it's like, like, like it's like, I see prayer as, like, something like when the, like what the pastor said, like, I can let my hair down, and when you're at home, it's like, that's when you really pour your heart out, because, like, like right now, like, I'm not around people. I'm alone. It's just me and God. And now I can really say what I want to say because maybe there are things you're uncomfortable saying around others that you can say in the comfort of your own home. And he's right. Like, you, it's better, you know, when it's just you because, you know, what you do in silence, you know, God reveals. You know, God blesses you in public. In public. So it's better for you to, like, you know, do that pouring out, you know, have that intimate relationship with God because that's when you see it flourish like you said seek the kingdom of God first and everything else will be added unto you that's you seeking the kingdom like when you do it on your own personal time as opposed to in a congregation or in a public setting Pastor Byron we'll go to point two after you're getting the conversation going that's good Marvin (laughs) but I did want to add one more thing just thank you brother Romero because um I remember years ago um, when we first started the church, we had a, a young guy who was not a relatively new believer. He was saved maybe a couple of years, and he just became an usher. And uh, he gets up to the front and, you know, to, with the plate to pray over the offering, right? So, you know, oh, Lord, what a terrible week I had. And he starts going into all the details of his week and praying about something that happened at work and praying about Aunt Matilda. I mean, and, and it just... And, and the church is just waiting for him to finish. And, and ever since then, when we do an usher class, I have to remind people, pray for the offering, thank God for the gifts, and amen. You know, like, there's a, there's a time and a place for the context of our prayers. And I, I, I just want to thank you for adding that. You know, know the context of your prayer. Amen. And, and before we go to uh, point two, uh, on that note... I want to go to the opposite. I've met an, 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 a specific person um, when I was going to the Pentecostal church, and he would call God his homie and say stuff like, you know, we're, we're going to pray now. And he'll be like, Lord, prayers one, four, six, and 8. And I'm looking at him like, so there's that other, as we were mentioning, that posture of heart. When we come before God, yes, we are his children, but dare we come in in an irreverent manner, which, you know, polarities or polarizations is our point, too, 
that this parable has often been misunderstood and has been said that we must learn the value of persistent prayer in order for the Lord to answer us. And if we persist long in prayer, God will eventually, eventually answer. This is a wrong view because God cannot be manipulated by our prayers or in a sense we are unable to twist God's arm by relentless prayers to make him respond. Does this mean that we never engage in persistent prayer? God forbid. We will continue. But the teaching of the parable is that we must continue in our prayers even when there seems to be no answer. Because unlike the unjust judge, how much more God to his children, how much more God to his elect? Is God loving? Yes, he is. He's good and he is gracious. And we persist in prayer, not because we haven't gotten God's attention, but because we know him and he will hear his elect when we cry. Do we, do we see the difference? It's like, pray, pray, the Lord will answer you. You know, my, my wife was telling me like the prosperity preachers, name it and claim it. N- no, brothers. No, brothers. God will hear his children when they cry. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And Jesus starts this parable by naming a specific city. But interestingly enough, until this day, in a certain city like ours, we have corrupt judges in power who aren't qualified to be in this position. Men who do not fear God and could care less about humanity. Verses 2 and 4, Jesus repeats. When, when something is repeated, we know that it is important. This judge did not fear God, and this judge did not respect man. So Jesus is showing us the darkness of this judge's heart, of his soul, of his mind. He shows us that the judge lacked the most fundamental requirement in life, which we discussed in midweek Bible study. Does anyone remember? The fear of of the Lord. The most fundamental requirement of our lives is the fear of God. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, wisdom. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 14.27 says, the fear of the Lord is fountain, a fountain of life. Think about that. Okay, (laughs) that one may turn away from the snares of death. And since this judge lacked fear of God, he had no care for humanity. And as we speak about polarities, this is a a polarity here. What is the, the polarity of lacking the fear of God and lacking the love of humanity? What's the opposite of the fear of God and um, not caring for humanity? Yes. How about how about how how about the two greatest commandments? You have. The judge who, he does not fear God, what does 
what is the first commandment, the greatest commandment? Love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this judge, he has no respect for man. He could care less. But what is the second commandment, greatest Well, what Jesus said about love your neighbor, love, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Sorry for that confusion. But do we see that polarity? The judge not fearing God and not caring for humanity, but we as believers love God and love our neighbors. That is the, the, the two greatest commandments that this judge lacked. And if we think about it, what made Job such a godly man? Yes, he was a man of prayer, but he also feared the Lord. In the beginning of verse 1, in chapter 1, the Bible says that there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil to the point where he prayed for his children. To the point where his wife said, curse this God and die. And he refused to do so. He refused to do so. And as we, does anyone remember what Pastor Bob said is the fear of God? Or Pastor Paul as well and Ben alluded to it too. So you guys cannot answer the question. What is the fear of God? Yeah, he said it. He said Proverbs 1-7. Uh, I would say, like, what is the fear of God? I would say, and... What is the fear of God? Um, I mean, reverence, but I would say in awe, some respect. Amen. Awe, dash, some respect. Amen. Pastor Bob. The old English, they would call it the awful presence of God. Not awful, like meaning something bad, but full of all. Mm. (laughs) And it is also that affectionate reverence, which we as Christians bend ourselves humbly and carefully to the Father, enabled by the Spirit, giving us that desire uh, and giving us that power, which NLT uses, Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. If we think about Joseph, he had the opportunity to sin. No one was looking, right? Quote, we're putting that in quotes. No one was looking. And he was entrusted with all that was Potiphar's, his master. And yet, the fear of the Lord was the governing factor, which he said in Genesis 39.9, how then... Can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Pastor Paul. I've learned that you cannot really love God until you fear God. They go together. And you disagree with that, but I would stand by that. I've experienced in my own life, the more I reverence him, the more I love him. Amen. And that shows us that a low view of God 
will, we will have a low view for men who are created in his image. We think about abortion, for example. People have a low view of God, and they do not see the evil in murdering babies in the womb, and yet all that blood spill will be a witness to them before Judgment Day. An example that Pastor Bob gave us about a lady in Philadelphia who was being raped, and instead of people stepping in, the first thing they did was take out their phones and record. And I quote from the superintendent of the Upper Darby Police Department. He said about this incident, it speaks to where we are in society. I mean, who would allow something like this to take place? So it's troubling. So we continue, brothers. In the court system, there were complaints against judges, which are frequent in the Old Testament literature. For example, Absalom, who took advantage of discontent with the legal system and instigated a revolt. We see that in 2 Samuel 15, 4. Judges are accused of showing partiality, of taking bribes, Isaiah 61, 8 of failing to defend the interests of the powerless. Zephaniah described the judges of Jerusalem as wolves on the prowl. So this polarity of these corrupt judges, unjust judges, we see God on the other end. God is the ultimate judge of the earth. And as God's representative, Christ also functions as judge as well. Which brings me to this question. What were the qualifications of a godly judge? Exodus 18 verse 21 tells us, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, again, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. So we see in a system in which local courts uh, refer complex cases to supreme judges, which is described in Deuteronomy 17, this was not an appeals court to which dissatisfied parties could bring their cases for reconsideration. It was a court of experts who could pass judgments in cases too complicated for the local judges. At that time, in the Old Testament as well, kings were appointed as judges. Do we remember uh, King Solomon when the, the, the lady with an, uh, another lady had the two babies and one died? And they came before Solomon and Solomon was able to cast a judgment. And thankfully, with that wisdom, as Pastor Bob mentioned about Solomon, he was able to provide a just answer. It is not clear whether the residents of Jerusalem went directly to the central court. We only know that Jeremiah, the prophet, was tried in Jerusalem by the princes of Judah after being charged by the priests and prophets with a crime worthy of death. I just want to give you a little background about the the court system uh, of what was going on. Um, But the prophets condemned corrupt judges in, in, in Isaiah 1. 21 to 26, and those who supported them 
were considered to be as a, a hired assassins by taking bribes and in, circum, in some circumstances accusing the, the, the innocent to be guilty by false witness. And in this court system, there was this widow, a widow, who in that city kept coming to the judge over and over and saying, give me justice against my adversary. This was a widow who was in a destitute situation because she did not have a man in her life. She did not have a father, a brother, someone to come in and uh, vouch for her, if we could say. And we could say that, we could see that in the courts of the uh, New Testament, it, was, it belonged to men, predominantly men. And for a woman to come into court would mean that there was no man to plead her case. Because men came to court, women did not come to court. Listen to this. In Greek literature, losing a husband to death meant that a woman in these times lost the sole sustainer and protector of her life. We see the imagery uh, uh, pictured of the neediness and the destitution and poverty of the widow who cast the two mites into the treasury of the temple. She was described as a poor widow. James 1.27 tells us that it is pure religion to help and to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. Widows are to be cared for. Widows are to be met with their needs. And this widow kept coming to the judge, pleading her case before him. To the point where she kept coming and she kept coming. Does that remind you of a commercial of the Energizer Bunny who keeps going and going? She kept coming and coming to the point where she was relentless before this judge. And the word that she kept coming and coming was that she, she pretty much K-O'd him. I don't know if I'm saying that right. K'd. She knocked him out. She knocked him out with the persistent pleading of her case and all she wanted was legal justice to be handed over to her because she was attacked by this um, person when I was in sales they had a you want to sell something to your customer you become enough of a nuisance take it <laughs> Sister Emery. <laughs> is that the judge decided to give her legal protection not because Amen. she deserved it, but because of his own selfish interests, Amen. which again speaks to the condition of his heart. Amen. Amen. And this is, this is what I want to highlight, as you said that, Amory. Thank you. Um, the different polarities, right? Uh, verse 1, praying or losing heart. Verse 2 to 5, we see the widow, but yet we see, the, we see God's elect who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. We see a widow was a stranger. We 
are God's children. And, 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 God's, and Christ says that whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. We also see the widow did not have open access in this culture. But we as God's children have open access to God. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. This widow did not have an advocate. We have an advocate, a continual intercessor, and a high priest. This widow had no promises that she could claim. We have the promises of God's word to claim. This widow had no internal helper. We have the spirit who helps us pray. Look at the polarities. The widow came to the court of law. Where do we go to? To the throne of grace. Not a throne of judgment, a throne of grace. This widow pled out her poverty. We have the king of kings. The earth is all his. And the judge was unrighteous. We have a righteous judge that we can assure will never change. That will be the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Amen. Um, and and to, to the point three, promise, these are the promises. It kind of, point two and three kind of just combine together because we see the polarities, but yet we also see the promises of God. The promises of God. And uh, verse seven says, And will not God give just to his elect who cry to him day and night? What is, what is the answer? Will not God do it? Of course he will. Of course he will bring justice to his elect. Will he delay long over them? Yes and no. Yes and no. Uh, it is, is a rhetorical question uh, because regardless of the delay in terms of years, such a delay does not compare to eternity. There is, the answer is no, he will not delay over them, them being the sake of the elect. He will answer them. But the answer is also yes, because God is, in a sense, using the word delay for the sake of the elect. God has not come now, right now, for the sake of saving those that are lost. God is patient over us. He is patient over them. And God will bring justice for his elect. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said about justice. God is both just and merciful, never unjust. There is never an occasion in any page of sacred scripture wherever God punishes an innocent person. God simply doesn't know how to be unjust. I thank him every night that he does, that he does know how to be non-just because mercy is non-justice, but it is not injustice. So I leave you with this. When you say your prayers, don't ever ask God to give you justice. He might just do it. And if God were to deal with us according to justice, we would perish swiftly as Nadab and Abihu, as Ananias and Sapphira, or Sapphira, I don't know how to say her name, uh, in the New Testament, who were instantly... Uh, killed, just like also Pastor Bob mentioned in the sermon. The justice of God, who can stand to God? No one. But nevertheless, 
The Lord is coming, brothers and sisters. And he will bring justice to his elect. We are not on God's timetable. Um, God is not, I'm sorry, God is not on our timetable. We are on his. So, for example, he told Noah that there would be a flood, but a hundred years passed until that flood came. He promised Abraham a son. He watched his own wife go through menopause. And 25 years passed before Isaac was born. And we can go on. The people of Egypt, they were crying out, they, right? They were crying out. And it was 400 years that the Lord responded. He did not delay. And 400 long years went by. And then Moses was lifted up, and he needed another 40 years to prepare him. So we are, God is not on our time. We are on his. But in the meantime, brothers and sisters, let us be crying out, Maranatha, Lord, come, which, which that's what it means. Lord, come, because we have hope. Brother Ramiro. Uh, you actually said what I was going to say. I was talking about how you said how God does justice. I was actually reading about that with the, with the major prophets, with Ezekiel and all them, how Babylon came and, you know, the Jews were being disobedient, you know, doing sin, you know, not honoring God in the temple, defiling the temple, you know. The leaders, the different, was it? I think it's Josiah, and I forgot the other. Um, no, I don't think it was Josiah. I think it was Josiah's fault. I forgot which what the order was for the kings of Judea and Israel and how they put them in slavery mm. to the Babylonians, you know, because as a punishment. But then, you know, God rewarded them. He said, I promise I'm going to get, like, he punished everyone accordingly, the Jews and the other nations. Like, he allowed another nation to come in enslaved them and then like I think 75 years later he you know freed them and he punished Babylon he punished Nebuchadnezzar he punished all these other kingdoms like he judged like he had a word for each country he said and the people of this nation this is going to happen to you and the people of this nation for all the things you did this is going to happen to you you know what I'm saying and for people of this nation like he had a word for all the people for all the bad they've done he rewarded them he punished them accordingly, and then he would bless them for the good they did. Like, God sees everything, you know what I'm saying? It's like you're saying, but like you say, like, you know, yeah, he yeah, punishes he, you. Like, he doesn't forget. Like, God, like, when we stand in judgment, he's going to be like, remember when you did this? Remember when you did that? You know, he's going to highlight the good and the bad, and he's going to reward you accordingly to everything. But just a reminder, Romans 8, that those that are in Christ, we have no condemnation. We've been justified by the finished work of the cross. And concluding, brothers, will Christ find faith on his earth upon his return? And what he means is, will the Son of Man find his disciples, which is you and me, that have we kept praying or have we lost heart and given up? Prayer is the expression of faith. Prayerlessness or prayerlessness is proof of unbelief. And may God help us. I leave you with uh, a quote from Corey Tembum: Is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? The test will be whether you continued in prayer and did not lose heart, 
God's elect will most surely be saved. Because as verse 7 tells us, the sign of the elect is that they cry to God day and night. Amen? Um, and last but not this, I, I promise I'm ending right now. I want us to sincerely, brothers, consider this as the Lord is coming, because he is coming, and he does not slack in, in, in his promise. This is not just about earnestness and diligence in persevering. You know, persevering in the faith is not just about not apostatizing. But I want us to consider this. Um, it is that as we wait for our Lord, are we growing and progressing in ways that you might be able to see the fruit thereof? So when I think of progress in the Christian life, I have to ask myself, have I made plans, have you made plans to be more like Christ in the coming months? Have I changed or have you changed your schedule to be more like Christ so that you can grow? Have I looked back, have you looked back over the past last couple months or year, because 2020 is gone, brothers, to check, to examine yourself, to see if you're growing and not just assume that you're growing, but are you intentionally memorizing scriptures? Have you shut off channels of old temptations that want to come through? Have you closed those doors and windows against sin? You know, there are, there are, any, are there any concrete changes in your life that you could come to somebody and say, Brother, what do you see in me? Do you see growth, that transparency, where someone can help you pray so that we can end up saying along with Apostle Paul that we are what we are by the grace of God. Are we growing as we wait? Let us pray. Father, we come before you thanking you for this opportunity that as children we can say, Abba, Father, that we have not only the Spirit who helps us to pray, but we have Christ who intercedes for us before the Father. Lord, thank you for allowing us to, to be here together. Make us men and women of prayer Make us, please, Lord, give us the desires to pray. If there's anyone, any of my brothers and sisters who are discouraged, in need of prayer, would you please, Lord, help them? Help us. We ask you, Lord, to please forgive us of our sins. And to cleanse us, for we know that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. And Lord, we, we, we leave this place asking for your blessing. That if anything were to be forgotten today, may your name, Christ, and what you've done for us on the cross may never be forgotten. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Any last questions? Or oh, we're good. Amen.